Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varley, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and today we're back in the podcast studio. I've got a special guest for our audience listening at home, at the gym, in the car, coming all the way to us from Omaha, Nebraska. Another another Nebraskan. We love having uh, people from Nebraska on our podcast. We love having everyone on our podcast, but Nebraska is pretty special for us. If you know the Project Purple story, we started investing in the program in Nebraska many moons ago. I think it's almost seven years ago with Dr. Hollingsworth and then Dr. Kelsey Clutie. And we've got another wonderful, amazing doctor scientist with us today, Dr. Pankaj Singh who is at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. He's a professor. He's also the co-leader of cancer biology program at the Fred and Pamela Buffett Cancer Center there in Omaha. Thank you, Dr. Singh, for joining us on the Project Purple podcast. Thank you, Dino. It is a pleasure to be here discussing uh, some of the latest findings that we have uh, had from our recent work. Well, I'm excited to have you on here, full disclosure. As I, I've said this uh, about many guests, um, you know, the internet is an amazing thing when it's done the right way. It could be, it could be negative in a lot of ways, but we, we like to keep it positive. One of our uh, runners, uh, one of our ambassadors actually sent me an article that, uh, that you were highlighted in about doing some really amazing new discoveries uh, for potential target for pancreatic cancer. And uh, I read it right away and I was like, huh. University of Nebraska Medical Center. I'm like, I don't think we've ever met face to face, but I was like, I know a lot of people there. So I, 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 uh, I'm laughing here because it's like six degrees of separation here. I reached out to a colleague of mine there and I said, Hey, do you know this doctor? And she was like, yeah, absolutely. He's a great guy. So I was like, well, can you connect me? I'd love to get him on the podcast and talk about this great work he's doing in the pancreatic cancer space. And then lo and behold, you and I connected and then we played connect the dots and, uh, the rest is history. As they say, you're here as a guest on the project purple podcast to talk about all your great work that you're doing in the pancreatic cancer space. So I love it. I love it. As is customary with all our guests, uh, we always start the segment or start the show off uh, with giving our guests an opportunity to kind of share their background. Um, and I always kind of preface this by saying to our guests, you can go as far back as you want. You can stay as high level as you want. And with that, the mic is yours, Dr. Singh. Sure. Thanks, Dino. So uh, I'm Pankaj Singh. I actually... Uh, I'm a professor in, uh, at the Apple Institute and uh, a co-leader for the cancer biology program, as you mentioned earlier. I started my uh, journey towards science from my master's uh, at uh, Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi uh, in India. And uh, after that, I actually joined, uh, I came to Nebraska for a PhD, and then I did my postdoctoral training uh, at Salk Institute in San Diego. Following that, I was recruited as a, a faculty uh, at Apple Institute. And since then, we have been primarily focused on uh, pancreatic cancer metabolism. We have been interested in looking at uh, uh, all the ways in which uh, tumor cells uh, have this increased propensity to uh, eat more and utilize that to grow and to divide. And our idea is if we can really understand the fundamentals of the biology, we can uh, then really target uh, the tumor growth and perhaps uh, devise better and novel therapies uh, to tackle that problem. So from the tumor-centric perspective, we are interested in all those metabolic underpinnings that uh, allow tumors to grow, uh, to be uh, poor resistant, sorry, poor responsive, uh, poor responses to uh, chemotherapy. And at the same time, uh, I mean, we are also interested in looking at what metabolic features of uh, tumors also impart wasting in cancer patients. So if you have, would have seen uh, cancer patients, as of course uh, you very well are aware of, a lot of them when they present in the clinic, they have already lost quite a lot of uh, their body weight. And uh, that primarily is from the uh, skeletal muscle mass that actually uh, is a very debilitating condition and uh, that very, uh, uh, I mean, strongly impacts their quality of life. So we are also interested in that and trying to identify uh, 
novel avenues uh, in which we can perhaps prevent that uh, wasting uh, in the cancer patients. Awesome. So why Nebraska? So you went from India to Nebraska. Was it just maybe family, friends? Uh, just kind of curious how you got there. Cause I'm always kind of interested in how people get to where they, where they, where they start and then where they end up. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's just somewhat incidental. So uh, I actually, after finishing my master's, uh, very briefly, I was enrolled in a PhD program at National Institute of Knowledge in Delhi. And uh, during that time, my uh, mentor uh, decided to go on a sabbatical. And uh, that was already uh, quite late. I think it was mid-April. And there weren't uh, that many uh, uh, PhD programs that were still accepting students for the fall. And Nebraska happened to be uh, one of those very few. And looking at the overall uh, I mean, cancer research prospects that I was very excited about, I mean, this turned out to be the, uh, one of the best places. And uh, as I uh, grew in my career, well, at the time in PhD, I realized, I mean, the kind of resources uh, uh, Nebraska had for pancreatic cancer research. And that's really what very much excited me uh, to come back and join as an assistant professor and eventually uh, uh, become a full professor here. You know, it's, it's pretty amazing, you know, just to hear you say that because, you know, for years uh, before I went to Nebraska, like I knew where Nebraska was, uh, but then I, I think it's kind of the thing, uh, Dr. Singh, like unless you're in the space, um, you don't, you're not really aware of it, right? Like people that aren't in the pancreatic cancer space probably would overlook Nebraska as a center of excellence, uh, just because they wouldn't think of it. Right. Um, but then once you get into the space and, and that happened to me early on, and, and then, you know, we started to kind of do our research about, you know, where, you know, a lot of the great research was happening, uh, from the bench to the clinic, um, not just in the clinic itself, you know, with patients and, you know, one name that just kept coming up and up and up all the time in our research was Nebraska. And I was like, what, what's going on with the University of Nebraska? Like, we got to get there and we got to take a look at these guys. And, you know, the stars align. And, and it's just really a testament, you know, to the leadership team that's been out there. You know, we've gotten to know them, you know, throughout the years that we've been involved. Um, and I know there's been some, you know, folks that have left um, and retired and new folks that have come in, but it's just really a testament uh, to the entire group there. Um, with the focus and the energy put into the cancer program and in particular the pancreatic cancer program. So just really cool to hear you say that, you know, and, and how you got there and everything. One other quick question here about your background, I shouldn't say quick, but a quick question for me is why biology? Was there an influence somewhere along the way that, you know, got you into that? Yeah. So I actually uh, have had a lot of influence, uh, Family from my father uh, growing up. I mean, he was uh, uh, a scientist himself and uh, his expertise was genetics and plant breeding. So uh, over the years, uh, I mean, I had access to, I mean, all these fancy textbooks that he had even in my high school. And uh, when you open the genetics textbooks, I mean, you realize, I mean, how cool this biology really is and what it's really all about. So uh, in fact, I mean, uh, everyone in my family, uh, is a PhD and a scientist, except for my mother, uh, my father, my sister, uh, my brother-in-law, and my wife, they're all committed to a career in science. That's really cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. So let's talk about pancreatic cancer. How, how did you get excited and, and engaged in the PC space? Yeah. So, I mean, I did, uh, I mean, my PhD training in pancreatic cancer, and uh, there I realized uh, how debilitating condition this is. And while I think there are a number of other cancers, uh, and uh, pancreatic cancer, I mean, it's somewhat still a rare disease, but I mean, if you look at it, I mean, in terms of mortality, it stands out to be the third leading cause of cancer in men and women in the US. And primarily, uh, I mean, if you look at the over the course of time, uh, a number of uh, disease outcomes have somewhat improved, but the pancreatic cancer outcomes have had a very minimal impact from the advances that have been made in the clinical realm. And part of the reason has been uh, the uh, little understanding that we have had of the biology of it. But of course, over the uh, over number of uh, years and uh, 
last several decades, I think a lot more is now known about the disease and people are just starting to come up with novel therapies that uh, are uh, um, having an impact on the biology of uh, or the overall clinical outcome uh, in patients. So from a biological standpoint, I mean, I, I, I'm very big into whiteboards and I love whiteboards. I got three of them in my, well, I think I have like four actually. I have two in my own office and then there's two more here in the, in, the, in our uh, boardroom. I, I, I guess from the, the cancer biology standpoint, how is that? Like I, I'm thinking about this and my head's spinning a little bit right now. It's like, that's gotta be so intimidating to think about it from pancreatic cancer. I remember talking to, to one of the scientists years ago and he, and he said, you know, the, the challenging part is as we, as we discover things, it opens 10 different new avenues that we didn't know prior to. And, and you know, if, if you talk to a lot of, of people in the space, they say, you know, there's the, the, the biggest challenge with this disease is there's no roadmap, right? Like there's not a roadmap that has ever been created and that's exciting, but it's also very daunting. And I, I think part of the challenge that patients experience, uh, you know, when they when when they go in for treatment, because we don't necessarily have a roadmap that other cancers have. So, how do you kind of take a step back from that, Doctor Singh, and and try to like? Because to me, that that would seem so so large and so daunting to try to put this map together. I, I, I guess first question is, how do you process that? But then second part of that is like, where do you start then? Sure. So, I mean, there have been a number of uh, studies in pancreatic cancer that have identified, uh, I mean, some of the very fundamental uh, mechanisms of uh, how this disease progresses. And uh, I mean, in some ways, how this is an initiative to begin with, and then how uh, it really responds so poorly to therapy. So, I mean, if you look at the biology of the disease, I mean, if you have a, a, I mean, a skin lesion uh, or a lump in the body that you can palpate, it's very easy to diagnose. And I mean, if you could actually diagnose pancreatic cancer very early on, uh, you would actually have much better uh, therapy outcomes because you could just resect it. And resected patients do tend to have better outcomes than the ones that actually end up on uh, some kind of therapies. But uh, pancreas being a deep-seated organ, I mean, it's not that easy to uh, really palpate or really uh, visualize any uh, thing that is going on. So then, I mean, you are really reliant on some subtle symptoms. And by the time uh, all the symptoms manifest, uh, the disease has already progressed, it has metastasized, and uh, it becomes somewhat difficult uh, to, I mean, really just simply dissect uh, and take it from there. But uh, patients still, I mean, get some, at times, uh, diagnosed very early, and that gives a lot of hope. So now the biggest question uh, from the uh, biology standpoint is when we are, I mean, not able to diagnose the majority of the patients at the early stage, I mean, what sort of treatment strategies have to be there? So then it really boils down to, uh, I mean, what kind of disease there is. I mean, for a number of years, uh, people have clinically tried folfirinol, sorry, uh, 5-FU and the gemcitabine, then also uh, currently folfirinox as well as uh, gem abraxin combination therapies. But I mean, those are uh, not really, uh, I mean, patients tumor specific. So. I mean, as uh, I mean, the biology is evolving. More and more focus now is on uh, the personalized medicine, and people are trying to realize that I mean, uh, uh, the tumor in two patients are not the same, and if those tumors are not the same, how are we going to really uh, I mean, identify that the different the underlying differences, and how are we going to really uh, target therapies specifically for those patients. So that's really the realm of uh, personalized medicine. And I think, I mean, even though uh, you can uh, lump the disease as a, I mean, pancreatic cancer as in this big uh, single bucket, but it's not really uh, just one disease. Although uh, you can still have these tumors being driven by some of the common uh, genetic alterations, there are a number of other subtle alterations that actually uh, eventually determine the overall fate of the disease uh, and also uh, how it responds to the therapy. 
So that's really where I think the excitement comes into the picture because over the last several years, the focus has been uh, all these personalized uh, I mean, strategies, first of all, identifying what sort of subtypes of tumors do we have and what sort of personalized uh, uh, tumor therapies uh, I mean, can we really utilize to target those disease. So I, I think the uh, more and more, uh, I mean, research-based outcomes that are going to have the disease are going to be uh, relevant to the personalized uh, aspect of this disease. Now, I mean, of course, uh, I mean, uh, we still don't fully understand uh, all of, I mean, how, uh, I mean, the disease is, uh, I mean, classified under things, but we well actually fairly good understanding of uh, what sort of molecular features are there. Uh, people have extensively uh, classified uh, the underlying genetic alterations, then underlying expression-based uh, subtyping, also uh, how all different, uh, I mean, proteins, uh, I mean, categorize uh, these tumors into different subcategories. Now we are, uh, I mean, focusing, I mean, the field as a whole is uh, focusing on how to specifically target these molecular subtypes. And uh, I mean, there are, there have been attempts uh, uh, to really target the central driver as well, which may be, a, which may hit uh, across these different subtypes also. That's uh, the underlying part of this uh, disease, which is KRAS activation, and which comes up a lot in this disease because, uh, I mean, over 90% of the pancreatic duct adenocarcinoma patients do have that mutation. So uh, some of the uh, researchers uh, in the field are trying to target that molecule itself. Some of them are uh, uh, trying to target the underlying uh, downstream signaling, which can perhaps... Uh, make uh, these tumors respond uh, in a better way. So the key is to learn more, but we know what we know is that every tumor is a little bit different than each other in, in some aspect. Um, and this is where this, this bio, understanding the biology is, is super critical in, in trying to, and I, I hate to use the word defeat because I, I feel like we've got to get to a point first where we can manage it really well, right? Like manage the cancer, come up with therapeutics that actually work um, and you know, manage the cancer, get rid of metastases, maybe have surgery and option, tumor reduction, and then you, know, you can eliminate the cancer that way. So do you think then you know, if we, 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 you just mentioned something and I just want to bring this up and then I want to get into this, this great work that you're doing, but this question just came up that I just wrote down is, and, and this is where it comes from Dr. Singh. And I, and I want to just put it in the proper context. We've had a lot of survivors on this podcast and I always ask them, you know, what their journey was, what their symptoms was, um, you know, when they were diagnosed, how they were diagnosed. For the most part, you know, everyone kind of falls in their own kind of category. There's there's never like identical twins, I guess, or identical answers to that question is probably the better term. So if if we if we're saying that, you know, treatment has to be personalized because there's such a a variety of tumor types and how those tumors potentially um, you know, present themselves and how they act against certain treatments. Do you think then, and I'm putting you on the spot here, do you think we have to think about that in the same way of, of detection as well? You know, that potentially because the tumors are different. And, and the reason why I asked that question is because, you know, I've, we've had patients that said, hey, some of them have had um, GI issues and that's the only symptom that they've seen. Some of them turn yellow, jaundice, right? Which is pretty common, but that's usually sometimes an indication that, you know, it's later stage because the tumor is, you know, uh, blocking off, a, a, you know, something and, and causing a, a blockage and, and causing people to turn yellow. Some people have that, that fluttering or that lower back pain. Um, and then some people have, you know, some very vague symptoms. So, would you say then that we kind of have to take that approach with detection as well? So, I mean, I think you raise a very important point. I mean, can we understand more about the onset of the disease itself 
And uh, what can we really learn from that in terms of all these different symptoms that we see in the patients? I'm not really sure if we are there yet in terms of diagnosis because uh, it tends to be more of an early disease. But some of the features that, as you pointed out, I mean, uh, blockage of bile duct and other things that can uh, lead to joint issues or medicines for that matter uh, that can sometimes uh, lead to joint related issues. And uh, I mean, some of that can be, uh, I mean, segregated from the other symptoms. Uh, uh, but all in all, I think uh, the symptoms still somewhat remain vague. And uh, you may not, I mean, if somebody has, uh, I mean, lower back pain, pancreatic uh, cancer is not really the uh, first thing on their mind. And then it's probably because for one thing, for, I mean, uh, fortunately, I mean, it's a, a rare disease, but I mean, there are actually some risk categories, I think that have, uh, I mean, high incidence of uh, pancreatic cancer. I think those are the ones, if we can focus there, I think uh, we can uh, much uh, easily look for what underlying biomarkers uh, we can perhaps uh, utilize for uh, the early diagnosis part. And uh, I think if we can uh, if we can have even better biomarkers combined with uh, a better understanding of what sort of uh, I mean uh, symptoms may relate to our sort of disease, if I mean that relationship does hold true in the clinical uh, settings, I, I think we can uh, definitely have a, a better diagnostic ability. Uh, that can lead to better survival outcomes. And I agree with your uh, I mean, statement that I think if we can manage the cancer, just like any other chronic disease, uh, maybe some sort of chronic heart condition or maybe uh, like, uh, I mean, thyroid malfunction, I think patients will be perfectly fine. I mean, any of those conditions could actually have severe outcomes, but if you can manage it, people will do just fine until we come up with uh, the cure. And it will happen. Uh, it will have to be uh, somewhat personalized. Uh, as we discussed, uh, I think it will have to be uh, very uh, tumor-centric. Uh, and a lot of it is actually governed by patient's biology itself, I mean, patient's genetic background. But uh, I mean, also uh, a big factor is, I mean, the genetic background of the tumor itself. So I think with all those, uh, things in mind, we can perhaps uh, eventually do a better job in terms of coming up with uh, more effective therapies uh, for management as well as for eventual cure. I love it. I, I, I love talking about this stuff because it gets me excited and, and knowing that there's you know people like yourself out there doing this work and, and the ideas are just flowing. So let's talk about the work that uh, you're doing here, and and in particular this NIH grant, this collaboration. Um, let's say, let's start where where did this start, um, and where did this idea kind of get formulated, and and let's talk through it then. Yeah, so I mean, this idea for this particular uh, recent mass that was just published in gastroenterology, it actually started as uh, I mean, our focus has over the years been on. Uh, I mean, trying to understand these metabolic differences. So we have been interested in looking at what sort of, uh, I mean, transcriptional uh, machineries allow tumor cells to change their feeding patterns, their metabolic behaviors. So serotonins represent uh, uh, this class of proteins that can actually sense some of the uh, changes in the milieu and uh, can really regulate, uh, well, sensing the metabolic alteration, they can regulate the overall, uh, I mean, uh, biology of uh, different uh, cell types. And so working on the project, we actually had a very uh, talented postdoctoral researcher from Italy, Enza Vernucci. Uh, she actually joined the lab, uh, I mean, a couple of years back, and uh, she started, uh, with this idea that, uh, I mean, what if we look at SERI-5? Uh, she had uh, evaluated a couple of different serotonins and uh, seen, I mean, uh, the way the expression patterns alter. And uh, based on her findings, I mean, we uh, narrowed down on a couple of these, on a handful of these, and we identified that SERI-5 actually is uh, one of the allied molecules. We contacted uh, um, this uh, 
team in uh, uh, Basel, Switzerland, and uh, there uh, they actually had uh, these fox mice, uh, which are really elegant genetic tools where you could specifically uh, delete this particular gene in, uh, in any given cell type. Uh, so we got those and uh, I mean, the team was uh, I'm kind enough to share those uh, valuable tools with us. And then we started uh, breeding these with the pancreatic cancer mouse models. And uh, while the uh, postdoc Enza, I mean, she had some very critical findings, but she uh, uh, moved on to the next phase of her career. We had another talented, uh, I mean, uh, student from China on a CSC scholarship program. Uh, he started in the lab and uh, I mean, he started on this particular project uh, uh, further, uh, I mean, taking from the initial uh, cues that Enza got, uh, he uh, further extended this work and uh, he had uh, a lot of uh, uh, help from another talented uh, uh, junior faculty in the lab, Srinath Shukla. Uh, so Dr. Shukla, I mean, trained him and helped him understand uh, what sort of, uh, I mean, this is biology uh, uh, we were looking at. And uh, from this, we actually identified uh, that uh, 35 uh, X as a tumor suppressor, and uh, it, its expression actually goes down as the cancer progresses. So right around the time, uh, we actually uh, came to realize that uh, this group in Italy, uh, and uh, they also had a collaborator in Germany as well. Uh, so they were developing these uh, very novel activators, the first-in-class activators for certain family of proteins. And uh, they were, again, very kind enough to share those uh, reagents with us. And we tested them in our models. And we were able to see that, I mean, if we are uh, targeting uh, 35 with uh, some of their uh, uh, molecules, we can then activate uh, the 35. So basically, uh, the levels are low in advanced cancers, but whatever uh, uh, levels are there for 35, if we can activate them with some of these uh, uh, activators, we can actually uh, make the tumors to shrink. And we also did uh, a lot of metabolic studies there as well. <laughs> Excuse me, and identified that uh, uh, these, I mean, cells that have uh, loss of 35, they do tend to, uh, I mean, reprogram their, uh, I mean, feeding abilities differently, and uh, their overall uh, biomass production uh, is slightly different. So that gives us uh, a lot of clues about the biology of, uh, I mean, how it is impacting uh, the disease progression. And uh, from there, we identified that uh, it's going to be a very elegant target. Uh, uh, the actors would be a very good, uh, I mean, target when combined with some of the existing chemotherapies. So we then combined that with gemcitabine, uh, which has been in uh, uh, the chemotherapy combinations uh, uh, for good reasons because it does actually have some efficacy, not a whole lot of efficacy, but some efficacy. But when combined uh, with uh, these activators, uh, we were actually able to improve the efficacy quite dramatically. And uh, that actually uh, shrank tumors uh, in the mice models. It's fascinating. So this SIRT5, CERT5 uh, enzyme is really the identifying enzyme that you guys have gone through and been able to isolate that or basically by deleting that enzyme, if I'm reading this correctly, and that has profound impacts on these the tumor's ability to grow. So I guess to try to uh, put this in a, a kind of analogy, it's kind of like stopping the, the food source for the tumor and enabling then the chemotherapy to go after the tumor and destroy the tumor or shrink the tumor, I should say, not destroy. Uh, but in early research, it's showing that it's having a profound effect on stopping the tumor growth, but then also allowing for the tumor to 
be impacted by the chemotherapy treatment in a mouse model. So I just want to make sure that everyone understands this is, these are mouse models. This is basic research. This hasn't hit the clinic yet for patients to be eligible for trials, but this is very promising in the, in the clinical setting with mice. Yes, absolutely. So uh, these are animal studies. Uh, I mean, we have done uh, a study in cell lines and organoid models in uh, spontaneous models, which uh, uh, automatically develop tumors. And also in patient zoographs where we have uh, uh, these tumor chunks that are uh, taken from patient tumors and uh, implanted into mice. And uh, in all these models, I mean, we, well, first of all, we had to show if uh, this I mean, particular, well, the finding was that uh, the levels decrease in cancer, in advanced cancer. So uh, if we uh, just depleted the protein itself, I mean, uh, or the gene for that matter, I mean, would we have any impact on cancer progression? And that's what we indeed identified from these mice models. If we delete it, uh, tumor actually progression, uh, I mean, goes very aggressive. And uh, so, I mean, there are no genetic alterations in pancreatic tumors in 75, but what does happen is its expression levels decrease. And uh, the expression levels, uh, I mean, decrease, uh, and that actually allows cells to be more aggressive. So uh, we identified that uh, even if the levels are low, if we can activate them, uh, that can uh, slow down the tumor. And... Then combining that with therapy, uh, there is uh, then, I mean, very decent effect in terms of uh, shrinking the tumors in mice models, of course. It has not been tried in patients, as you pointed out. It's so fascinating, you know, just like we were talking in the beginning about this large roadmap. And then it's like you find this enzyme that potentially has this opportunity to you know, stop the cells from growing and allows the the chemotherapy treatments to get in there and, and shrink the tumor is just so amazing and so awesome. Do you know, I, I know you said that the young researcher from Italy uh, was doing work on uh, SIRT5. Um, was there a reason why that started? I'm always kind of fascinated, like, how did we start, you know, is it, you know, the analogy is it's chicken or the egg, you know, how did we start with SRRT5? Like, how, what was the, the, the reasoning okay. around that? So, yeah, I mean, the reasoning was primarily we were trying to look at, I mean, how cells are responding to, uh, I mean, the changes in the, uh, in the nutrient milieu. I mean, what's, around, I mean, cells bathe in uh, all these nutrients and these, uh, I mean, uh, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen sources. And uh, I mean, they basically uh, live on that, depend on that to grow, to divide, uh, to duplicate and uh, to really form this uncontrolled uh, uh, growth, uh, which leads to tumor mass. Uh, So they all depend on this nutrient milieu that surrounds them. So uh, sardines actually represent this uh, family of proteins which can sense cellular energy status. And that in turn actually allows them to regulate uh, a number of downstream uh, genes at transcription level. And uh, by doing so, they can actually, uh, I mean, set the pace for aggressiveness and other things. But uh, not all, I mean, there are seven different family members uh, in the certain family, and uh, not all of them are, uh, I mean, tumor promoters or uh, tumor suppressors. Oncogene or tumor suppression, well, oncogenes or tumor suppressors, those are the two types of, uh, I mean, proteins you can have. Oncogenes promote tumor growth, tumor suppressors uh, inhibit tumor growth. Uh, ironically, uh, a lot of these proteins can actually act both ways, depending on the cellular context, including 35. I mean, there are uh, cancer models in which 35 can act as a tumor promoter or an oncogene. And uh, in pandemic cancer in particular, it acts as a tumor suppressor. And uh, I think it's very cellular context dependent. So the KRAS actually does have a role to play in there because KRAS uh, tends to suppress uh, certified expression. 
Uh, but the reason why we just stumbled upon SWIFT 5 was because when we screened for all the seven uh, certain levels, just trying to understand how cells are really responding to those nutrient changes, uh, we identified uh, very few of these certain family members that were uh, showing uh, significant associations with survival and uh, significant changes in expression levels in the uh, enteric tumors. And uh, some of them uh, were already published and certified was uh, one of the proteins on which there was just very little work that was done, but it still showed uh, very robust correlations uh, uh, with patient survival, uh, as well as, uh, I mean, the levels uh, were significantly altered in advances versus uh, the normal uh, tissues of the early lesions. It's so amazing to just hear it. And, you know, like you, you say, how there's very little work that's been done but then, you know, realizing that, you know, this has huge potential, um, you know, I know, again, it's it's in the lab, it hasn't reached patients yet, but this is the kind of stuff that just gets us super excited to hear about the things that are happening. And as I said before, you know, when we open like, you know, this vastness of, you know, this roadmap, but we've able to identify this segment here that has some real potential here is just really awesome to hear. So thank you for sharing that with with myself and the audience. This has been a collaboration. I know from reading the article, um, you've had collaboration uh, across the board uh, from the Buck Institute Research on Aging, Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, Germany, India, China, uh, Italy, and Switzerland. Um, I mean, talk a little bit about that. And, and then I, I do have a question about the grant. So was it, is it pretty easy to collaborate with other scientists on this project? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's funny that you asked that. Uh, I tend to believe that the entire uh, world, I mean, is just one large family. And uh, it's, it's especially true in the scientific family, in the scientific community. Uh, I mean, if you think about, I mean, all these scientists trying to I mean, work toward the common goal, I mean, they're always more than happy and more than eager to actually collaborate and help see, I mean, how some of their findings can actually help someone else, uh, I mean, uh, take advantage of and uh, really find cure for any given disease. Uh, like I mentioned, I mean, we got these uh, I mean, very elegant animal models from Switzerland. Uh, we actually uh, got these uh, uh, compounds, the molecules that uh, can activate the protein from Italy. There was a collaboration with, uh, of the Italian group with uh, another investigator in Germany. And we are uh, trying to uh, understand the mechanism. We also got uh, uh, some of the uh, reagents from the Buck Institute of Aging uh, where uh, Dr. Eric Whedon actually has uh, and also contributed uh, some of the seminal work on certain five itself, uh, trying to understand its basic biology. Uh, and also uh, another researcher, uh, uh, Dr. Sarika Chaudhary, I mean, who helped us understand uh, how uh, the molecule really, I mean, fits with the uh, the structure uh, based on different prediction models. Uh, I mean, how does it really alter the 35 uh, molecularly uh, that perhaps uh, help uh, may help us understand, I mean, how the activation really occurs. And we also had uh, uh, an elegant team of scientists uh, in China who uh, had a lot of uh, human tissue resources and who provide us uh, some, uh, I mean, key evidence on the role of protein uh, in uh, uh, patient survival uh, for pancreatic cancer patients uh, in particular. And of course, uh, we also had, uh, I mean, elegant support from uh, Dr. David Hewson from uh, Paul Spring Harbor, who provided uh, some of the annual cell line models uh, for uh, studying the uh, the particular protein in the uh, mouse models. So awesome to hear. I mean, I, I, I've always, I, I mean, I've gotten, I've been blessed to to meet a lot of scientists, clinicians, uh, people in the clinic, and and and, and, and you know, doing the, the the work in the back on on the benches. And you know, it's it's seldom that you find, you know, uh, 
unwillingness to to collaborate. It seems like everyone has that, at least that I've met, uh, has that mindset of like, hey, let, we're in this together, uh, regardless of you know what the ID badge says or what the lab coat says, uh, you know, on the right side or the left side, because one side's your name and then the other side's the institution, right? Um, and and I find, you know, I mean, I I can say this, uh, Doctor Singh, but I know I I found I have found in in my eleven years, I think sometimes the institutions are in the way. Uh, to some degree, um, you know, they don't necessarily want to, you know, share what their researchers are doing. Um, whereas, you know, the researchers want to share, they want to collaborate, they want to figure this thing out, they want to move on to, you know, your minds are spinning. Um, you guys want to figure this out and move on to the next thing. Um, and sometimes, you know, there's institutional issues in the way. And then that doesn't happen. I mean, not for the institutions we've worked with, um, but I know there's some out there. So uh, it's just awesome to hear that. I got two. I, actually, so uh, I mean, institutionally, I mean, there are a lot of uh, forms, MTA protocols that we have to fill out and sign that does slow us down. Uh, but I think they are there for the sake of protection of intellectual property and other things. I mean, they're there for a reason. But at the end of the day, I mean, uh, I have found the scientists are so eager to collaborate. I mean, uh, they're very invested in the proteins and the disease models. And I mean, anybody we asked, I mean, nobody said no. They said, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we'll do yeah. whatever we can to uh, support what you're trying to investigate. It's awesome. I love hearing it. So talk quickly. I got two questions left. And the first one would be um, about the NIH grant. What did that do for you and for your lab and for your work? And, and was that prior to this work being done or was it, you know, kind of in unison? I know sometimes the NIH grants take a little while to come in uh, just because of the mechanism of the government and it is what it is. Uh, we won't, we can do a whole podcast on that, but uh, let's talk about the grant that you were awarded. Absolutely. So this was a, a, an NIH auto one. I mean, specifically funded uh, by the National Cancer Institute, and we had been uh, tremendously lucky to have that grant. And uh, so, I mean, in the chronology of things, uh, we actually started uh, developing uh, and generating some of the data. And just to show the proof of principle that uh, in just the cell line models, uh, we can see some efficacy. And then uh, based on that data and some of the other previous data based on therapy responsiveness and other things in pancreatic cancer cells, we applied for this grant. And uh, the review panels, as well as uh, the program directors, they really felt that this was a very significant study. And this was actually one of the grants that was uh, funded uh, on the first submission itself, uh, which was actually, in my opinion, I think that has been incredible. I, I haven't had any other grant that was funded on the first submission itself. And uh, that allowed us to uh, not only uh, add more data, but also uh, to recruit, uh, I mean, personnel uh, that were able to carry out the work, uh, support for them models. They're incredibly expensive uh, to breed. And uh, the grant wasn't even modular, which actually has limited budget. So uh, NIH was a little generous in allowing us to have a uh, little extra money that actually allowed us to carry on all of this work. So awesome. So I, I just want to, I wouldn't say, I, I know this is the next two questions are kind of tough, um, but what are the next steps for the research? Where do you, in a perfect world, let's say if all the stars align, uh, where, where would, what would be that next step for this promising research and where would it go? Yeah. So, I mean, right now, I think we have evidence that these uh, molecules, the actuators, do work in the tumor that have low 75 levels. I mean, of course, the tumors that have high 75 levels, it's automatically, uh, they may have other mechanisms uh, to progress, but the ones that have low levels, they are somewhat addicted to uh, the low 75 levels, and uh, they have uh, rewired their uh, I mean, metabolism in a way that uh, these inhibitors do show efficacy. Uh, I mean, definitely better efficacy in terms of uh, combinations with the chemotherapy, but uh, the efficacy is there in these models. So based on that, the next step really is 
well, so for uh, are there any better actuators uh, which would be uh, much more readily available for human patients? And then uh, trying that in uh, human patients to see if there is an efficacy or not. So uh, we are still, uh, I mean, advancing this collaboration with the team uh, uh, in Italy, where they have actually come up with uh, some of the more advanced, uh, uh, some of the more efficacious uh, actuators. Uh, but this actuator by itself has, uh, I mean, a pretty decent amount of activity. But I mean, having a wide array of these actuators gives us the opportunity to compare and see which one of these will really uh, advance uh, to the human patients. So I, I think uh, that's the immediate next step where uh, we can evaluate, uh, I mean, is this the right molecule or are there other alternatives that will be the most suited uh, molecules to go in the patients? It's awesome stuff. I, I love hearing it. I love it. And this, this is the stuff that's going to eventually make its way to the clinic, make a difference, and uh, hopefully allow us to manage this cancer. So uh, awesome. Uh, thank you for all the work you're doing. And I, I know this is, uh, you know, this doesn't happen overnight. This is years and years of work that's been invested and uh, appreciate the fortitude and, and the patience to, uh, to grind every single day uh, towards us. So it's just awesome to hear. Last question for you. And there's no right or wrong to this. Um, and th th it's it's your definition. And the question is, how do you define the term pancreatic cancer? What's your definition in your life and your role of pancreatic cancer? Yeah, so basically pancreatic cancer, I mean, it's just the malignancy of the pancreas, uh, which, I mean, inflicts, I mean, this enormous population. Uh, I mean, although statistically it's still a smaller disease, but I mean, it actually has, uh, I mean, uh, wide implications for the people I mean, who are diagnosed with it. It's almost an immediate death sentence for those uh, patients. But really, I mean, for the family members, the caregivers, uh, for uh, all the friends and everyone that are assured with them, I mean, we have been, uh, I mean, personally uh, impacted. One of the, uh, one of our, uh, I mean, lab colleagues, uh, immediate family member uh, actually passed away uh, not so long ago from this disease itself. And that has been actually a very personal story for all of us. Uh, but also, I mean, uh, every once in a while, I mean, we uh, meet with some of these pancreatic cancer patients uh, and uh, we hear their stories. I think they're all uh, excited about, uh, I mean, what new outcomes are there, what is happening in the uh, realm of pancreatic cancer research and how it can impact them. And I mean, uh, we know that we can actually uh, generate a lot of data at a molecular level, but I mean, what does it really mean for the disease value and for the patient outcomes uh, more importantly? So I think those are still, I mean, somewhat unaddressed, unanswered questions that we are, and I mean, this entire pancreatic cancer research community uh, is trying to answer and uh, hopefully we will actually uh, make uh, strong uh, strides in this uh, uh, in this particular uh, disease model uh, in this very important problem, uh, and we really remain very focused, very enthusiastic uh, about. Uh, I mean, trying to find a cure, trying to find a way to manage the disease better, and we are incredibly thankful to all the supporters, all the taxpayers, the NIH, uh, DOE, PANCAN, uh, Project Purple, uh, I mean, all these, uh, I mean, foundational supports, all the uh, philanthropists that are actually uh, believing in what we are doing and uh, really making this uh, happen. Truly, I mean, really uh, the faith of uh, public uh, at large in uh, our abilities and uh, our uh, research, uh, I mean, faith really in all scientists in general that uh, we can actually, as a community, we can uh, make this happen. Well, you know, we don't do it alone. And so it takes, uh, you know, the researchers, the clinicians uh, to play their part. And I've always said, like, if everyone plays their part, the government, foundations, researchers, you know, we get the patients enrolled in clinical trials and early detection and, you know, all these studies, 
you know, that's when we we can move mountains. And and I feel, you know, there's there's so much momentum going on right now. And I feel we're at kind of like a almost a tipping point in the sense, I hope, um, with the disease and in the space to become better in managing it and realizing you know, the, the many discoveries, one of which that, you know, you've been gracious with your time to talk to us about. So we really appreciate you for all you're doing and everything that you're doing in the space. My last thing here for you, maybe there's another researcher that's listening to this or someone uh, locally that wants to help invest in your research, we hope, uh, or they could be someone from around the country that wants to give money to the, the work you're doing. Where's the best place for someone to connect with you uh, to learn a little bit more, to ask you a question if you have that? Yeah, absolutely. We are always uh, very excited to uh, connect with fellow researchers or supporters, and uh, they can reach me at uh, my uh, work email. That's uh, pankaj.singh, uh, my first name dot last name at unmc.edu. Uh, that's the easiest, uh, I mean, way to uh, get connected. Otherwise, you can also search me at the UNMC uh, website or the Apple Institute website. Uh, I mean, it lists all the faculty members uh, uh, that are working here. And uh, some of us are actually very, uh, I mean, much directly committed to what pancreatic cancer research itself. Awesome. Well, Dr. Pankaj Singh, thank you for all you're doing for the pancreatic cancer community. Thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. It's been an honor to have you on and talk about all the great work you're doing. Thank you, Gina. It's uh, truly been a pleasure, and I'm uh, really excited about uh, I mean, uh, your uh, medium trying to connect with people and uh, explaining them what we are doing uh, and how we are uh, trying to make uh, these advances work for them. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to share this episode, download the Project Purple Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of the Project Purple Podcast. Mm-hmm.